In this series, we have covered some tough questions. Not all by any means, but the more frequently asked questions in my personal experience. If last week's issue, Does God Let Bad Things Happen, is the most repeated question, then today's is a close second. I've been asked the question in lots of forms. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Or why is the church homophobic? But of all the ways I've been asked, this wording is the most unique. Would Jesus have gay friends? I thought of answering the question with a simple, you know, the New Testament doesn't give us a list of Jesus' friends, so let's stand and have our closing prayer and we'll just go home. <laughs> that would not be right. It would be easy, but it wouldn't be right. If you know me, then you know I don't seek out controversy. If you know my heart, then you know I seek to be an encourager. I found it interesting since I announced this series on answering tough questions, this was the only sermon to create a bit of consternation for folks, as if I was trying to stir up feelings or be divisive. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The question of homosexuality spans our feelings as a society. It spans our political preferences, our family dynamics, and our individual experiences. Who hasn't seen the TV shows Will and Grace or The Office or Modern Family and many others? It's part of our culture. Several years ago when our girls were little, one of the staff kids was over on a Sunday afternoon playing with Rebecca. In the course of the afternoon, we overheard this conversation. Our little guest said, I know what a homosexual is. Now, you must understand that as an elementary-aged child, I didn't want my daughter to know how to spell the word sex, let alone understand anything about it. It's at this point that I'm muttering to myself, why do I let my girls play with preacher's kids? Not waiting for a response, she went on to explain, a homosexual is someone who has sex at home. I breathed a sigh of relief. It's cute when kids misunderstand something, but it's not so funny when we adults don't approach important issues from a mature perspective. I'm going to ask a couple of favors of you this morning. Remember, a 30-minute sermon cannot do justice to all of our questions on any subject, let alone this one. And please listen not only to my words, but also to my heart. While most Sundays I'm content if you take a quiet nap, Today, I want you to stay with me so that you don't miss what I say while you're in that mysterious land where summer closes your eyes but leaves your ears only half open. As with any issue, the extreme views seem to get all the press. As a Christian, I'm embarrassed by the immaturity and insensitivity of some who claim to be part of the kingdom. I find the antics of the Westboro Baptist Church to be despicable. Their acts of hatred and cruel protests and any other so-called churches like them hardly constitute Christian behavior. It would be hard to find anything Christ-like in such demeanor. If you are gay or you have a member of your family who is gay, I want you to know I'm truly sorry that some have hijacked the name of Christ and invoked Him as a covering for their own misdirected rhetoric. They are wrong, and I don't really want to be associated with such. God does not hate homosexuals as they propose. If I read the Word of God correctly, God loves all of us. By the way, the membership of that congregation is a mere 40 members, hardly indicative of the amount of press they get. Sometimes other well-meaning folks in the church have said things either unintentionally or thoughtlessly that offend. It shouldn't be that way either. And if I have said anything offensive in a sermon or in my conversations, I have done so carelessly, and for that I apologize. On the flip side... There is a somewhat militant in-your-face view from some gay organizations that is equally offensive. All Christians from their perspective are homophobic and hateful. I find that to be distasteful too. 
they are as guilty in the opposite extreme as their Westboro counterparts. Hateful is such a strong word, and to apply it generally to all Christians is irresponsible. Honestly, I just don't know many genuine Christians who I would consider hateful in any context. And like most, anytime someone assumes I feel a certain way based on their bias, I find that frustrating. Thankfully, I believe these two extremes constitute the minority, though they raise a great ruckus and they keep the proverbial pot stirred. I'm hoping the rest of us together can, by our actions and our words, silence the extremes. Twenty years ago, my cousin, who was six months my junior, died of AIDS. We had shared so much fun through the years when we would visit our grandparents' farm together in southern Indiana. I remember visiting with him in the hospital in those closing days of his life, sharing about his faith and praying together with him. I preached his funeral and have wished many times he was still alive to share our memories and to laugh about those moments that cousins share. This issue has touched my life in heartfelt ways, and I know that I'm not the only one here with such stories. So often when it comes to any sensitive issue in our lives, we speak from the standpoint of feelings or human perspective or hopeful outcomes or our sense of the way things should be. We say things like, this is my experience, so therefore it must be true, or I feel this way, so therefore it must be right. In my teen years, this slogan was popular. If it feels good, do it. It suggested that feelings are the only legitimate basis for behavior. I don't know what you have chosen as the basis for your life, beliefs, and behavior, but I've chosen to stake my eternity on Jesus Christ. And my only resource to know Him as fully as I can and to know how I am to live in Him is His Word. I want to teach it faithfully and through it point others to Him in whom we have life, forgiveness, and everlasting hope. You see, we have the choice. We can try to make His Word conform to our experience or we can strive to make our experience conform to His Word. That then has been my choice. So let me start with God's Word and His perspective on the practice of sexual intimacy in general. And there's no better place to start than with the words of Jesus Himself. Take a look at this passage in Matthew 19. Certain of the Pharisees have come to Jesus with one of their many verbal tests, and they have posed the question to Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They were, of course, referring to the law given through Moses, but the question was designed to be wrong no matter how Jesus answered it. There were two polar opposite opinions on this subject within the Jewish community. It was the question like, are you still beating your wife? It's a no-win question. No matter how you answer it, uh, you're wrong. A no answer even suggests that at one time you did it. But notice how Jesus responded. He bypassed the Mosaic law and goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, reminding his questioners of the very plan of God from the beginning. This, then, is not so much a Jewish or even a Christian issue, but a human issue. This is God's creation ordinance and his decree. Matthew chapter 19, then, beginning in verse 4, this is what we read. Jesus says, have you not read, he replied, which that in itself would have been an insult to those who would have known this passage forwards and backwards. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, 
Let man not separate. You see, God's design from the very dawn of time is that one man and one woman would form a union that would be the basis of a new home. God designed a man and a woman to be married to each other, or to put it in another way, to belong together physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Marriage then required two things, leaving their families, not as to location, but as to relation. A spouse is to be the object of one's primary commitment and loyalty. Secondly, they are to be united as husband and wife, and that intimate physical union would create a bond that would make them one. They were no longer simply two distinct individuals. They became one unit. Then Jesus adds these words, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. The word joined is actually the word yoked together, to become life partners yoked together, co-laborers yoked together. God created us with this beautiful gift of sexuality, but marriage was and is the Lord's only plan for the expression of such intimacy. Leviticus 18 is a passage sometimes known as the Holiness Code. Now remember, the first recipients of the law were Hebrew refugees who had just been freed from their Egyptian slavery and were headed to a land which had been dominated by pagan Canaanites for generations. God challenged his people to be unique because out of this Hebrew nation would come the Savior. This list was designed to distinguish the Hebrews from the Canaanites where they were headed and the Egyptians where they had just come. The behaviors listed in chapter 18 were endemic and common practice among the pagan nations of that time. Whether it was incest or adultery or homosexuality or bestiality or murdering one's children as an act of worship before man-made gods, no one among the Canaanites gave a second thought to those practices. Any kind of sexual expression was embraced by the people in that land where the Hebrews were headed. But God made it clear that such behavior was not part of his plan or design. Rather, the Hebrews were to become a living example of God's moral code. It was as if God was saying, You are my people. I want you to live by my standards because I created you and your desires. And I know what practices will enhance your life and what practices will harm your life. Like any parent will refuse a child that which will harm him, so the Heavenly Father sets down his parameters to protect his children. Yes, you say, but isn't the law passe? After all, the law also talks about how to wash and what to eat and how to deal with mildew and mold and how to stone disobedient, disrespectful children to death. Well, that's true. The law does say all those things. But I would suggest there is a difference between ceremonial law and moral law. We are no longer obligated to ceremonial law, but God's moral law that governs relationships hasn't changed. After all, who gets to decide what still applies morally? Incest is wrong, but hey, adultery is now okay? Really? God called his people to be morally distinctive, and it began with their sexual ethics. What's more, this distinction is also repeated in the New Testament. Moral behavior was expected of Christians as well as the Hebrew nation. The citizens of Rome and Corinth, to whom Paul writes, were by no means any more righteous than the ancient Canaanites. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, these words. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 
Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. History records the indulgent nature of the Roman populace. But if you really wanted to party with no boundaries or inhibitions, if you really wanted to have a good time, then you went to Corinth. In the mindset of this pagan culture, the church had been established. And Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians with these words, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, I want you to notice in these passages that the Apostle Paul hits home with all of us. Honestly, I don't care much for these writings. These are hard passages. Not hard to understand, but hard to face. When I look at these texts, it's like looking in a mirror, and I don't like the reflection I see. And would you take note that homosexual practice is not highlighted or underscored in the text? It is listed along with the rest of these sins. Unfortunately, we have taken these lists and emphasized some things while diminishing others. Some matters on this list have become acceptable sins. Did you notice gossip comes between malice and slander? Arrogance is there. Greed is there. Cheating is there. Theft is there. Heartlessness is there. Disobedience to parents is there. There is not a soul in this room that isn't impacted by these texts. And in our quest to point the finger at the sins that don't impact us, would it not be better for us to take a deeper look inside and take the plank out of our own eyes before we try to pick the speck out of another's? When's the last time you did a gut check and took a fearless moral inventory inside of your own life? Are you afraid of what you might find? Me too. I get that. But what if all of us in the kingdom, what if every one of us in the church decided to take these lists and commit ourselves to living out these precepts of God, these markers of authentic, consistent Christian living? What if we said, I'm done with gossip. I won't cheat on my taxes or my schoolwork. I will learn to control my anger. I won't take what belongs to me, whether it's an object or someone's reputation. I'll learn to be content. I'll let go of my greed. I won't indulge in sexual sin. Would the world take notice that we've become a clearer reflection of Jesus Christ through that kind of behavior? Yeah, I think so. We might well earn the right to be heard because his light would shine more brightly through us. 
Paul does make a special note about sexual sin here. This is no trifling matter. As a Christian, what we do with and in our bodies really matters. I worry that we who profess Christ as Lord have embraced too much of what the world encourages. If you are married, let me say to you, remain faithful. Adultery is devastating to any relationship and to any family. Its scars remain forever. Do not compromise your marital vows that you made to one another before God. If you are not married, remain pure and celibate until you are. When you choose to live together before your wedding, you are hurting your best chances at a good and lasting marriage. It also creates doubt when your future spouse wants the intimacy of marriage without the commitment. And when you look at marriage, don't view it as a succession of future relationships and that your first wedding is merely your starter marriage, as is a popular term today. Marriage is for keeps. And if you're addicted to pornography, get some help. You're ruining your mind, your relationships, and jeopardizing your soul. Just remember, pornography is unhealthy and is a form of unfaithfulness to the one you love. If you have feelings for those of the same sex, don't indulge those feelings by practicing homosexual behavior. Such practice is also outside the will of God. Some will say, but Jesus never spoke about homosexuality or personally condemned it. That's true. But Jesus never spoke about incest or pornography or prostitution either. But that's not an argument to say that he approved such practices. He indirectly addressed all of these when he talked about God's plan for marriage. So to sum it up again, there is only one God-designed, God-ordained union for the expression of sexual intimacy, and that is the union of a man and a woman in the commitment of marriage. I understand it is easy for me to say these things, but putting them into practice is quite another challenge. If you are gay, you may say to me, you don't understand how I feel, and I will agree. I don't know how it feels to be attracted to another man. How we are wired is not easily explained. Feelings are feelings. I can't say to you, oh, you don't feel that way. Feelings are personal. They are what they are. Our sexual orientation is impacted by so many different aspects. Our behavior patterns, the way in which we think about ourselves, the environments in which we grow up are all a complex matter. And I'm confident that no one just wakes up one morning and says, huh, I think I'll be gay today, or I think I'll be straight today. It's just not that simple. I get that. And while I may not be able to relate to another's temptations, you may not be able to relate to mine. All of us have struggles where we seem to be caught in the middle between what we want to do and what we feel to do and what God's Word tells us to do. However, just because I feel a certain longing or have a certain propensity to a particular activity that is contrary to God's will, that does not justify my indulgence as if I cannot control my behavior. An alcoholic is always an alcoholic, but an alcoholic can be sober for the rest of his or her life. Being alcoholic does not justify drunken indulgence. There are no easy answers for the struggles we face in life. I know that what the scriptures ask from us is not easy and most of the time not popular. As a matter of fact, the pastoral side of me wants to find a passage that says, just follow your heart, just follow your feelings and everything will somehow work out. 
But there is no passage like that. I can't claim to love you and love the Lord if I don't tell you the truth as I understand it from his word. If you don't know where to turn in your struggles, let us help you. We can connect you with those who can and will make a difference in your life. So if you struggle with your sexual orientation or your addiction to pornography or your greed or your bitter gossip this morning and you're wondering if you should even come here, the answer is absolutely, please come. You see, it doesn't matter where you've been. It only matters where you want to go. Do you want to go with God? We all depend upon the grace of God to deal with our sins and our failures. I've had some good conversations in my office with folks here who are gay and who wonder if they are welcome. Yes, you are welcome. And yes, I want to be your preacher because I want you to know Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world. I want everyone to know Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. And I'm convinced that the only way we can conquer our struggles and temptations is to be committed to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Our vision here at Sherwood Oaks is yes to love, but that needs to be more than just words. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I like what Rick Warren wrote. I am not allowed by Jesus to hate anyone. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. End quote. That truth is best seen in the story of Jesus in John chapter 8 when a woman was caught in the act of adultery and brought to him for judgment. Clearly, she was guilty of sin. So was the man she was with who was conspicuously absent at this accusation also. Jesus disarmed her accusers with a challenge. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. When he looked up, all her accusers were gone. And this one, who was sinless, simply said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, it's not about the past. It's about the future in Christ. The desperate tone of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians is made hopeful as he wrote in verse 11, And that is what some of you were, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I hold on to that promise that God can take our past, wash away our sin, and give us a fresh start in Jesus. The grace of God truly is amazing. Only He can change us. If you are a Christian, then you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and He can help us resist whatever temptation we face. You see, it's not about being perfect. It's about being surrendered to Christ and following his lead. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that we don't have a list of Jesus' friends. But I believe that Jesus encountered folks from every walk of life and loved them all. We do know he welcomed and ate with despised tax collectors and all manner of sinners. He met them where they were and invited them to a closer walk with God. As to friendship with Jesus... Well, he answered that question. 
In John chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command. You can be his friend this morning. Are you his friend this morning? Do you know and love him as Lord and Savior? While we stand and sing, you come.